And so when you live in a world like that, where it's all about me, 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 I want my rights, leave me alone. When it's focused like that, I think I could say to, to, to any secular person, they could be atheist, agnostic, whatever it is, is it creating the type of society that we want? I don't think it is. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Okay, we've got a repeat guest on the program. We chatted a few years ago. With me is John Malloy, former MPP and Ontario Cabinet Minister, also currently Director of the Center for Public Ethics at Martin Luther University College. Lots of other qualifications, but we'll just leave it at that for now. Is that all right? Oh, that's wonderful. It's great to be uh, on your program again, David. John, been a busy few years around the world, and you guys get to the heart of really politics and and culture and faith and your school. And this, I'm sure, has brought a whole bunch of new issues for you guys to explore. Oh, definitely. You know, the COVID uh, experience, I think, shone the light on on all sorts of problems in our society. You know, one can begin with long-term care. Actually, you can begin with the dynamics around the pandemic itself, uh, the divisions in our society over things like vaccinations, um, what happened on Parliament Hill, you know, the truckers' convoy. And of course, there was a, a religious dimension to that. But beyond the actual COVID experience, you've got what happened with long-term care. You, of course, had the uh, reaction in Canada to the murder of George Floyd. You had the finding of unmarked graves in various Indigenous communities. I mean, COVID was really a period where we saw the world... I don't know. I, I was I was going to say coming to terms, but I don't think they did come to terms with the world perhaps becoming aware of some of the divisions and underlying problems in our society. And actually, what's been interesting, we've all been so anxious to get away from COVID. And in some ways, we seem to have gotten away from the spirit that was there that said, hey, we've got to tackle these problems. So, uh, you know, no shortage of work for us to do and thinking about where we go from here. Has there been a any sort of different approach you've had to help your students, maybe future policymakers in this country and around the world with uh, sort of grappling with some of these issues? Well, part of it is is understanding what some of the broader underlying causes are. Uh, but there's, a, there's a, I think, a tendency to oversimplify that sometimes. So you know, a lot of what I try to do, and I always joke with my students and I'm trying to mess with their minds, is is get them to think about why do we have these divisions in, in our society, what's causing them, what's the underlying causes, and also critique perhaps different perspectives for their simplicity, because a lot of people come forward on, on the extreme right and the extreme left, and they, they claim to have all the answers. They tend to be quite critical. They tend to be, you know, overly simplistic that, you know, the, the the reason why there's so many divisions is, you know, because of our economic system is because of our legal system is because of, of uh, a variety of factors. And I try to encourage my students to to question everything and to realize the nuance and the complexity that's out there. And that simplicity to uh, a solution. And, and you, I like the word nuance. You said you talk about this in the in the book that I want to I get into that you wrote a couple of years ago too, since we last chatted, politics and faith in a polarized world. And you talked about how as someone who has a faith, you have this end game perspective. And that means that uh, regardless of how brilliant your your proposed policy is, uh, the impact that it can have on a demographic of people or an area of society, it's going to be limited. There's always going to be some underlying problem that's going to continue because we know the world's broken. 
Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I, I quote in the book, and thank you for for highlighting the book. I, I quote in the book uh, a British TV series called Press. It's about uh, journalists, and there's some old, uh, uh, you know, experienced journalist who's talking to a young colleague, and he gets very frustrated with her. She's very progressive, very idealistic, and he says, "Hey." the world doesn't have a solution. And I I love that quote, because sometimes, and particularly during the the pandemic period, uh, when we're talking about some of these issues, some of the voices that were coming forward, and they were welcome voices, they were were calling us out for action. But what they would do is they would put forward, quote, unquote, a solution, all we need to do is this, that or the other, and we're going to have no racism, we're going to have no poverty, we're going to have uh, uh, no issues around long term care or indigenous reconciliation. But the fact is, as you pointed out, the world is full of broken people. And uh, we're all struggling, and we're always going to struggle. And although we have a call to continue to improve the world, to improve the lives of our of our brothers and sisters, particularly those that are that are on the margins, at the end of the day, we're we're never going to get there. Uh, for a person of faith, there is that moment when we believe we will achieve it, and that that, of course, uh, for a Christian is uh is through jesus christ and that that becomes the solution to the problem for a christian but in the interim we know that we're called to build god's kingdom on earth but we know that we're always going to fall short that we're always quite frankly going to fail uh that we can't go it alone but you know it's our call to always keep trying and so i think and this is something i try to to go to your earlier question i try to pass on to my students I think you have to be uh, realistic uh, about the world and you have to recognize that we're all broken people and that you can't simply say on one side there are the good folks, on the other side are the bad folks, and here's a solution that's going to uh, you know, punish or, or put under our thumbs the bad folks and, and life's going to be great because the world doesn't work that way. No, it certainly doesn't, and it's uh, good that you're stoking your students in reality and you're someone who's uh lived through politics i mean you were uh in the back room with with kretchen uh when he had to figure out what how canada was going to respond to 9 11 and and you were you know a, a key contributor to uh kathleen Wynne's government and helping the people of kitchener waterloo so you've seen just how how messy things can get and it's uh, a lot more complex than we like to boil it down to well, the world tends to have trade-offs, uh, and people don't like to admit it, but there's always trade-offs. And even the best ideas are going to have some negative repercussions. And, you know, there's the old, uh, uh, the, you know, there's, uh, different people have said it in different ways, but it's basically the uh, best solution to, uh, to a particular challenge or problem usually has, has within it the seeds for at least five or or ten or more new problems that are going to be on on the horizon, and I think you have to be realistic about that. One of the best definitions of government or politics that I've ever heard is management of scarcity. You never have enough money, you never have enough time, uh, you never have enough uh, regulatory power or inspectors, or you know the list goes on. So. You make your choices, and that means that that someone else is going to have to pay for them. Perhaps someone else isn't going to get the resources or the money they need. I mean, there's always trade-offs, and you're always trying to sort of bring things back in, in balance. And, and that's the reality of the world. And I think, you know, uh, for a person of faith, there's a way to square that circle by realizing the the 
weaknesses of human beings, the imperfections of human beings, and the fact that we're always going to fall short. Well put. John, I do want to get into the, the, the book a little bit that you wrote, as we've touched on, politics and faith in a polarized world. It seems like it was uh, more than just a few years ago. It seems like it was ages ago. Uh, you wrote this uh, primarily following uh, when Andrew Scheer was the leader of the conservatives in Canada, and there was some co- complex things being brought to the surface about uh, his religion and and what that meant and how it was being scrutinized. But this does have a lot of insight into the current polarization we're facing. Could you just uh, share like what was the the big thrust of a message you were hoping to get across in this? Yeah, we should be clear that I, I wrote this. I'm a Roman Catholic. I wrote it from a, a Roman Catholic uh, perspective, but I think there's a lot of material in there that would be of, of interest to Christians in general and also anyone who, who comes from a faith tradition. Because what I saw in, in 2019 when Andrew Scheer ran for leader was this this really strange dynamic in, in Canada where you know, we welcome all sorts of voices to the public square. We recognize uh, the diversity of our country and the strength in the diversity. And yet someone came forward who came from a particular religious tradition, a Roman Catholic, and there was all this suspicion about him. And, you know, very quickly, his candidacy uh, and his ties to the Roman Catholic Church became a punchline. Um, people didn't recognize uh, the strength that uh, his faith brought to many of these issues. They didn't recognize things like Catholic social teaching, the long traditions of the church, the fact that having someone with that faith commitment actually could be something positive uh, for Canada. Uh, and it came out in a couple of different ways. And listen, I should say right for the record, and you know, People, people listening to this might be scratching their heads because you mentioned my association with Jean Chrétien, with Kathleen Wynne. Andrew Scheer is not my political party. I don't know Andrew Scheer. Uh, I didn't vote for Andrew Scheer. I don't think anyone's shocked by that. I'm a, I'm a liberal. But at the same time, I felt sorry for him because his relationship with his faith uh, simply became a punchline. I think it showed the media and others had no real understanding of faith. Uh, and, you know, I don't really blame them. I think there is a, a lack of, of literacy around faith. And the other thing is that they focused their entire analysis on a couple of key issues or a couple of central issues, hot button issues, and one of them being abortion. And they could never get beyond that. I mean, Scheer said that he he would not open up the laws around abortion. He basically said that for him, it was not a, an issue. For his party, it wasn't an issue. And yet they weren't willing to accept that. So they went after him repeatedly. And then at the same time, they, they showed just a, a lack of understanding of some of the strengths that his faith could bring to his job as, as prime minister. Good outline. And uh, you opened the book uh, giving a, a good description of of how, uh, in particular, Roman Catholicism has sought to uh, build a bridge with society rather than um, separate themselves further with this uh, term called culture of openness. And you then went on to describe that maybe now we're more in a culture of identity. Uh, Could you unpack those a little bit more for us? Sure. And, you know, I'll try not to get too far into the Catholic weeds on this. uh, But, you know, if you go back to the 1960s, sort of everything old is new again, you're seeing some of these trends in the Catholic Church right now. But if you go back to the 1960s in Vatican II, there was a sense that the Catholic Church needed to engage the world 
and that the Catholic Church needed to partner with it. They needed to be open to the ideas. There needed to be exchanges back and forth. There needed to be ways for uh, the Catholic faith to invigorate the world, to uh, form partnerships, to work with other faiths, to try to, in a sense, in, you know, bring bring some of these these important messages, whether it's around, uh, you know, fighting poverty, uh, fighting racism, some of our international struggles, uh, things like nuclear war and uh, how do we curb nuclear weapons? Of course, even back in the 1960s, you had uh, people talking about the environment. So there were there, there, there was this openness to the world and an openness to partnership and working with the world. What you've seen, I think, in the last number of years, and certainly within the Catholic Church, it was sort of the 80s and the 90s, was much more of a focus on uh, how we differ with the world as opposed to how can we partner or engage the world. And, you know, within the within the Catholic Church, there was a focus on some of these hot-button issues, and it became very much, um, you know, we're religious. We believe in, in certain things around uh, sexuality, around reproduction. The world seems to differ with us. Um, we need to put up barriers. We need to no longer engage with the world. And of course, it wasn't just the, the, the Catholic Church. You saw a number of faith traditions do that, sort of retreat and not wanting to engage with the world. I'm hoping that we're seeing a bit of a change uh, on that, certainly the leadership of my own church. But I still think there are some some really big uh, divisions uh, in this country. And, you know, on the one side, you have a religious uh, folk who I think, you know, are a little bit overwhelmed by by the world that they see, and, and they're turning their back on it. And you see the secular world, which is saying, well, we don't really need people of faith. And, you know, at, at, at best, let's hope they just keep it to Sunday morning. We certainly don't want to hear from them. And we certainly don't see them offering anything to uh, our larger culture. And that's, that's, that's in my mind, just, just a, a horrible situation because there's so much that I think people of faith can offer. Uh, the wider world. And uh, I think there has to be an openness on both sides. I think people of faith can grow through that engagement with the wider world, can change. And I also think the wider world can benefit. Uh, so I'm hoping that that this culture of engagement, uh, you know, my book was a tiny, tiny little contribution to trying to create that that culture of engagement. But as I say, and in the book, I start with the Andrew Shear experience, I think what he demonstrated is that uh, it was it's really hard to have that engagement because people, you know, either jump on the hot button issues or just basically uh, assume things, I guess, about people of faith. So if we could like throw you back into politics now, like, uh, I don't know, 2025 or something like that. And don't, don't scare people, David. Don't scare <laughs> people. And it's documented about your your personal faith convictions and you would probably receive more criticism today than you did back when you ran. Some would argue, how would you guide yourself to go through that and to try to create a culture of openness where you don't retreat and you sort of can still showcase that you can make a positive contribution and maybe even a, a deeper positive contribution as someone with faith? Well, I think it's about meeting the world where it is and being very clear that that's your approach. You know, in the book, I'm, I'm critical. And, you know, I know I did offend some people in saying this. I'm, I'm critical of, of, of people who basically say, I want the world to be a certain way. 
how you know i i believe my faith guides me to a certain decision point in a whole variety of issues and i want the world to be that way and um i'm never going to compromise i'm never going to move one centimeter off that position and should i ever get power which of course i'm not but should i ever get power i'm going to go to ottawa or to queen's park and i'm going to pass all sorts of laws which are going to shape the way the the world is and you know it 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 becomes ridiculous you have to meet the world where it is you have to look at the realities of politics that we talked about a few minutes ago you have to look at the the diversity of of our nation you have to look at all the competing voices and you have to try to do your best to stay true to your principles and it's not always about uh passing laws you know within the catholic tradition there's obviously catholics are well known for concern over abortion but it's not abortion it's life issues and you know what if you want to start talking about life issues certainly you can talk about uh abortion you can talk about euthanasia but my goodness there's a lot in between you can also talk about you can talk about the fact that if you walk down the streets of of any major city and dare i say it i think even even smaller towns now you're seeing people who are literally sleeping in the streets people who are in tent cities people who are homeless who have no hope no hope whatsoever of uh of finding any kind of rental accommodation because it's you know three four five times uh what they'd receive on any sort of social assistance so when you look around at a world where we are in the middle of an environmental crisis where we have these international wars where people are dying i mean folks if you want to talk about life and life issues there's no shortage of ones to talk about and you don't have to necessarily uh, start with something like abortion or uh, medical assistance in dying you 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 can i think be very true to your faith by looking at a much broader scope of issues and also looking at at positive policies about programs that can be put in place or partnerships that can be formed i think there's a very positive way to approach this to meet the world where it is and still tra- stay true to your faith Okay, so that's your counsel to people who are Christian, who have a faith background, uh, entering into the public arena. What would be your counsel to secular people who are, like you said earlier, maybe getting fed up with the smaller minority that we are? And uh, what would you say to them about why they should uh, take people of faith seriously? Well, I think you've, you've got to look at the nature of, of our problems right now. Um I don't think I'm some sort of religious zealot to say that we live in a very, very selfish society. I'm not picking on my students. I'm just saying my students, I think, are very um, typical. When you talk to them about what's important to them, it's about their rights, their personal rights. We don't talk a lot about responsibilities in, in our society. And so when you live in a world like that, where it's all about me, 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 I want my rights, leave me alone. The government needs to allow me to do whatever I want, uh, you know, unless I, I, I directly interfere with someone else. When it's, it's focused like that, I think I could say to, to, to any secular person, they could be atheist, agnostic, whatever it is, is it creating the type of society that we want? I don't think it is. You know, what's the answer to that? The answer is is a bit of a focus on, on the common good, on our responsibilities to each other. And what I would say to a secular person is, you know what, religious voices have something to offer to that conversation because they are communities that come together 
and they they talk about the common good they talk about this responsibility and in many many cases they are putting their words into action it's religious communities that are often running the soup kitchens or the uh, the homeless uh, shelters who who are out trying to spread the word about the environment and maybe it's worth listening to them listening to why they're they're taking on these causes and figuring out how they can contribute to it. That doesn't mean giving them some sort of uh, a role on a pedestal because they're God's official spokespeople, but just saying, hey, they have something to contribute. There still are millions and millions of Canadians who are part of a faith tradition. And let's tap into that energy. Let's tap into that wisdom. And let's uh, bring them to the public square to to make a positive contribution. Well said. Uh, John, I just want to end by asking you a bit about this one uh, commentator who you who weighed in that you, you cited in your book, uh, Bretherton. You, you referred to him quite a few times and uh, his analysis of the, the parable of the great banquet, this, uh, this guy that's having this party and uh, none of his friends can come. And so he, uh, he tells his servants to go invite people on the streets, invite them all. And uh, what Bretherton said was that you know, it's not just like he's doing good for people who might be different on the socioeconomic spectrum, uh, but he actually parties with them. And I just wondered, are there any examples that you see of, of this happening where you have uh, you're seeing this this done well, where there's people uh, in different camps, politically, economically, spiritually, and they're they really don't have that much in common, but they're making it work because of a, of a bigger thing they're pushing towards. Yeah, definitely. I mean, listen, he's one of my. Uh favorite theologians. His name is Luke Bretherton. He's originally from the United Kingdom, but he's now at Duke University in the United States. And he writes a lot about hospitality. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, that that actually is the context of, of, of that story in the Bible. And it's very interesting. You know, I mean, one of the wonderful things about the Bible is you, you sort of get the, you, you, you're, you're hit with the message, sort of the immediate in your face message. And then you dig down and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, this is, this is even more uh, uh, interesting than, than we thought. And, you know, it is the idea of we're going to, we're going to invite uh, uh, all the outcasts to this uh, great banquet because my normal friends wouldn't come. And Bretherton points out, this isn't, and uh, now I'm putting words into his mouth, but this is sort of the analysis. He says, this isn't about the the nice middle-class person like me going out and, you know, giving up my evening to, to serve soup in a soup kitchen and and have the homeless sort of come in and and i don't want to say in a patronizing way but you sure. know we're yeah, yeah. we're the middle class people who are there to serve them this is about actually throwing a party where we're all together and what what i find very interesting is is we talk a lot about interfaith dialogue we talk a lot about dialogue we talk a lot about listening to the voices of of those on the margins and i think it's very very important but I think a lot of these um, discussions and forums can be a little bit artificial. Uh, you know, I'm going to sit down with with homeless people and and find out, uh, you know, what they're feeling or or, or try to understand the, their perspective. And I think sometimes you, you have to turn this from a situation of dialogue to a situation of, of action. And I think instances where communities come together and, you know, you can think of something like Habitat for Humanity, or you can think even again about some of the work that's done for the poor, or the homeless, where you have volunteers from a cross section of, of society, people of different backgrounds, people of different economic means coming together. That, that I think can create a real cohesiveness and a real understanding. 
oftentimes I think it's when it's in action that uh, uh, we start to understand each other. So it's it's mm. not necessary for us to to create these sort of artificial uh, circumstances where we're meeting. Let's roll up our sleeves as a group and 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 come together. And you know some of the statistics that I've seen show that it's often people in the lowest socioeconomic uh, uh, category who uh, volunteer the most, who actually give the most back to their community. And I think there's all sorts of opportunities uh, for a whole cross-section of people from sort of the richest to the poorest and the most educated, least educated, and those that have been in the country for a very short period of time, those that, uh, you know, their families go back generations to come together when they're focused on something. And whether that's, uh, uh, you know, an environmental initiative or a housing initiative or, or pushing forward on, on, you know, some sort of, uh, uh, community project, I, I think they're really magical times. And I think, that can create this sense of we're all in this together and we're all equals because we're doing it. So I put my uh, my weight on those sorts of experiences a little more than this, uh, you know, let's have a round table and, and hear from each other. They're important. I don't want to, I'm not mocking them or anything, but I'm just saying I'm not, I'm not sure if they achieve as much as just all of us rolling up our sleeves and addressing an issue that's facing us. Wow. Quite insightful. And uh, I think carries some extra weight too, coming from an educator, someone who's at a university where a lot of academia is uh, about maybe some more of those roundtable discussions. But uh, you've been in the trenches, you've been in politics, and uh, you see your faith in action. We're going to have to leave it at that for today. Always interesting talking to you, John Malloy. Really appreciate your contributions from Martin Luther University College and uh, all you've done in in Canada. Thank you for this. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Next time on Culture at the Crossroads. Well, John Fraser, we had him on the show to talk about the death of the Queen. He's back. We're going to check in on the status of King Charles. He was at both the funeral and the coronation. So we're going to get his thoughts from the former head of Massey College and someone who has held this portfolio for decades across Canada. Charles is the first to have really sounded the alarms about climate change. He was the first big figure to announce the importance of indigenous voices in our thinking and the first to sound the alarm against mindless bits of architecture. Many of the things he warned about and that he was dismissed as a bit of a loon have all become commonly accepted now. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.